I hear from women all the time that they feel sort of embarrassed that they couldn't keep working, um, but they really just wanted to be home. And and I, we want to give voice to those women and that desire and that dignity of that role as well. Welcome to the 30 Second Book Club podcast, a place for people who want to read more books and be in a book club, but don't have time to do either. And at the heart of every family is a mother because she brings order, connection between family, a deep sense of belonging, and the safety that comes from just being known and held. That's why I'm so excited to invite uh, and welcome Noelle Maring to the book club today. She has co-wrote the book, Theology of Home 2, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. And Noelle, let's just talk about first your journey of writing this book. What inspired you to do this and, you know, write a second book after the first one? Sure. Yeah. So my co-author, Carrie Gress, and I, we knew each other in grad school and got back in touch a few years ago and just realized we were both interested in the same sorts of um, societal issues, particularly with regard to women. Um, and so she came up with this phrase, theology of home one day when she was actually on the treadmill and she was listening to a song about a homecoming. And it just struck her how much home is a universally longed for concept, place, reality, um, something that makes us both nostalgic for the past, but also a longing for some sort of perfect home in the future. And so it just seemed like a great phrase and one that we could dive deeper into that what are the, why is it such a universal longing and how does that connect with um, maybe it being a signpost to something that we ultimately desire spiritually, which is to be at home in, in heaven, of course, mm. um, in eternal beatitude. So we want, we created these books, first the first one and then the second, both with uh, beautiful photography and then some substantive concepts that weren't, I think, that I think are accessible um, but are but are also give some meat to, to the reader. Um, and, and the photography was a really important piece because it, we really want to be a beautiful book and speak to the reason why women and everyone in general is so focused on connecting sort of this material aspect of beauty of the home with some, some deeper longing and some spiritual need that they have. And I, I mean, I love right at the very beginning in the introduction, uh, this is something that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people do struggle with, a lot of women struggle with, Embracing home, but rejecting homemaking. So what does that mean? Yeah, so so I think that, the, you know, we, we looked into the data and people spend millions, I, I think maybe billions of dollars every year on home remodeling. And the number escapes my mind now, but it's an enormous number. And there's, of course, whole networks of television, uh, you know, that have been created just to feed this desire to know how to care for our homes and to be better homemakers and to have a more beautiful home. Um, and then there's this return to sort of the craft of homemaking, domesticity. You know, people are making slow broth stu- soups. We have kitchen gardens in our backyard. People have chickens, you know, all these things. Um, but we realized that there was some disconnect between the activity of homemaking and the role of the homemaker. So even though we're sort of all trying to do domesticity better and really do homemaking better, we're not using that word. And I think it's because it's been so uh, successfully sullied in our cultural consciousness that we, we really, there's really been an effort to make it seem like it is home is a prison from which women need to escape, not um, an opportunity to kind of do some of the most important stuff of life. And so, but I, th- I think that in that effort, we kind of have come full circle where we're realizing, well, actually I do want my home life to be thriving and to be wonderful and to be beautiful. And I don't want all these shortcuts and conveniences all the time that oftentimes make us eat poorly or um, treat our home like a filling station. I think it's Wendell Berry is a great quote that our homes have become filling stations. Um, but I really want a place where we can belong and reside and be and nurture these important relationships. Um, and, and so we're returning to that, but that's still the, 
the job, that name homemaker, I think still rubs us the wrong way. And so what we're trying to do is reclaim the word in a fuller sense that, you know, I think even working women are homemakers, you know, that, and men want to make a home beautiful too, you know, a good home too. You know, a lot of my husband cares about our home more than he cares about our job, his job, excuse me, um, because it's the, the bigger project of our family life. Um, and so I think there's a broader understanding that we can use of that word, but also redignify the role of the full-time homemaker. That's important to us too, because a lot of women, when they're in the throes of pregnancy and childhood, it's extremely hard to, you know, go, keep going to work. And, and I think I hear from women all the time that they feel sort of embarrassed that they couldn't keep working, um, mm-hmm. but they really just wanted to be home. And, and I, we want to give voice to those women and that desire and that dignity of that role as well. I think it's kind of interesting. I'm sure you've seen this too. Maybe more women interested in uh, just your books and in and, and the concepts you talk about it, especially uh, after the pandemic is kind of ending. I mean, we're seeing a lot of people that are kind of reexamining their lives and careers after all this. Yeah, I think so. I think that the past year has done a lot to the cultural sense of home, right? At first, we were all just shut in our homes and people were confronted with, well, what's actually happening here and what do I need to work on? And all of a sudden, you know, I'm with these people all the time and, you know, I can't escape or I don't have my normal distractions. Um, and so I think it forced a lot of people to re-examine how things were going and what we've maybe been neglecting. Um, but secondarily, I think there's, you know, a lot of people are leaving more urban areas and wanting sim- more simplicity in their lives, I think, as a result of the events of 2020. Uh, and, and I th- and so, you know, with a, obviously everyone realizes they can work from anywhere. So there's some more flexibility than we maybe thought we had. And maybe companies were granting employees for a long time. Um, and so that move into more rural lifestyles or just more, maybe just a more simple lifestyle, I think is, uh, bears with it a reexamination of just how, you know, the, whether or not the hustle and bustle of our lives that we've just maybe defaulted into has been the most fulfilling and the one that works the best um, for what we ultimately want to achieve in life. I think that t- ties in perfectly to the um, chapter two, where you talk about what is fruitfulness. And I, I think, yeah, the last year we probably have thought about that a little bit, but uh, dig in a little bit about what you talk about in the book. Yeah, so fruitfulness is an a interesting word, um, and we have it themed throughout the book. So there's really beautiful pictures of photography of fruit throughout and flowers and all these things. Um, and, and I think it was just a recognition that oftentimes we can see, you know, a, 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 the microcosm of our human nature mirrored in, in, in the created nature, right? And so this process of gardening, you know, it's not one that we invented, obviously, as an analogy for womanhood or for aspects of the spiritual life more broadly. But it is a really important one and a really beautiful one. And, um, and you know, I think that we're trying to examine what it is to be a woman, because we've been told for so long that womanhood is tied to power. You have to be powerful in order to fully be a woman, and you have to be fighting your oppression. Um, this is why women's issues are traditionally considered to be very politically left I think because it, we've defined womanhood based on this metric of power, which is really a Marxist me- metric. And so we're trying to rediscover and reevaluate what womanhood actually is. And part of what's built into our bodies is this ability to contain, to nurture, um, and to put, to transform, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, that, I think that's what happens with pregnancy, but it's, uh, it's also not just biological motherhood, it's spiritual motherhood too, that women have an incredible capacity to take people into their homes, into their lives, into their spirits and care for them and to interact with them in a way that is understanding of where they've been wounded and can, you know, help, help each other heal. Uh, women are incredibly relational in that way. 
but it's even in, in our bodies, like even um, in the way our arm elbows bend, we see that we are able to cradle a child more, um, more uh, specifically, I think, or our bodies point to these things and obviously with our fertility in general. Um, and so just diving deep into what is God building into our bodies, into our souls, into our hearts, then, and what do these point to? This ability to be fruitful, which is one that doesn't stop at ourselves and our own fulfillment, but actually is generative out into the world that can has long, long reaching effects into you know, beyond our own lives and beyond, you know, after, after we pass away, that, that mm-hmm. there is a legacy that, you know, all of us, uh, men and women are, are, are built to create, which is, um, it, which is outlasts ourselves and, and can aid and, and help the future as well. So also in the chapter talking about fruitfulness, you mentioned this, that it said that one of the most difficult struggles in religious life for women is obedience. So maybe to talk a little bit more about that and, and, and how to overcome that, how to embrace obedience. Well, I think obedience is extremely difficult for everyone, right? I mean, there's right. no oh, yeah. who doesn't have that. <laughs> that. But what we were dive, dive, dialing into is that I think it's been particularly made poisonous when you connect it to womanhood, mm. that there's some sense in which, you know, for a man to say this man is obedient to his superior or, you know, he as he is under his boss or he is he is reverence, reverent of God, you know, and uh, subject to him. Mm. There's something really beautiful and holy and powerful about that. When you talk about in the context of womanhood, you know, I think we're, we're so affected and, and influenced to think of that as being something really poisonous and oppressive and and bleak. Um, and so, and so I think that's created a real struggle for women to understand themselves in that way, in a way that we're all called to be. Um, but I also think that there's an aspect in which, you know, I, the leadership, uh, leadership is a servant leadership, according to Christ, right? Christ mm-hmm. modeled leadership as a, a leadership of service and love. But we've created sort of this idea that the structure of the family is that for a man to be considered the leader or even spoken of in that way is to have him be a leadership of dominance, right? Not Mm. leadership service. These are very different metrics. Um, And I think there's a real need for men to be spiritual leaders in the family and not in a way where they're making all the decisions and bossing everyone around, you know, and all these ways that the movies portray, but rather that if the, if religion and spiritual life of the family is left to more just more or just to the woman, it quickly becomes something very feminine and the faith should be feminine and masculine. It should be heroic and nurturing. It should be strong and protective and it should be compassionate and generous and loving. And both men and women can embody those two virtues, but there's a particular way in which a man embodying that virtue, um, certain, some of those virtues, takes on a dynamic for the children's mind and for the wife's mind that feels more full and complete than if the woman is, is left alone to it. Um, and, and I think we've lost that sense about how heroic it is for a man to be kind of owning the spiritual life of his family um, in a way that's gentle and loving, but strong too, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and has real perseverance and um, constancy. Hmm. So let's go here. Um, talking about, I thought this was kind of interesting. So in your section that's called Connectedness, you talk about this study that psychologist John Gottman did that small everyday interactions can closely predict the success or demise of a marriage. He calls it uh, putting out bids. I've never heard of this concept before. It was really cool. I don't know if it was new to you, but if you want to explain a little bit more, I I think it can be really uh, helpful for people. 
Yeah, no, it was this great article I read, I think, in the Atlantic magazine some years ago and always stuck with me. And so I went back and researched it when in writing this book. So he he's saying that really that the he could tell he would analyze couples for years and could could tell the ones with almost a perfect, very accurate predictability, which would which would fall apart, and which would succeed. And it really wasn't in the grand gestures or, you know, the big postures of marriage, but rather in the smallest minute interaction. So he would say, so he gives this great example. He says, say you're, you're sitting with your wife at breakfast and you're reading the paper and she says, oh, look at that bird out the window. Well, the husband has a, has a couple of choices. He could either not look up and be like, oh, wow. Or he could dismiss it and be like, I'm reading, you know, I'm busy. Or he could sit, stop what he's doing and really engage. Um, and, and he says that, that, that those small moments of, it's a, called a bid, he calls it, where you're, you're kind of putting out a feeler to, for an interaction. And the way that it's responded to really signifies whether or not the person has a natural disposition of loving kindness towards his or her spouse, or if the natural kind of um, uh, default position is to be dismissive or even possibly antagonistic. And the active engagement is sort of the, the is the one that most um, for, uh, foretells of a of a successful marriage. And I thought that was powerful because it really those small moments uh, are really make up a landscape of love or of hostility in a marriage. So then you talk about um, that women have a tendency to get stuck comparing ourselves to one another by social media and things like that. So um, how? Do we, and this is, of course, again, great advice for anybody, but how do we avoid that comparison trap, especially when it comes to, oh, so-and-so at church, she's got this great, her kids are always well-behaved, you know, they're always dressed really nicely at church, and then I'm, I'm coming in 10 minutes late, minivan, you know, and, and we're, 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 bar- we're, just, we're barely holding things together. How do we avoid always comparing ourselves to the person that we think is perfect? Yeah, it's so hard. And I do think that there's some sort of kind of intrinsic vulnerability that women sense that makes us feel threatened, you know, by uh, or can lead us to feel threatened by other women. And I think that what it comes down to is, uh, where do we find our value? Do we find it in the way that we are viewed by other people? Or do we find it first and foremost in our relationship with God and being daughters of God and finding our dignity, beauty, value, worth in that? Um, And if we can, if we can ground it and root it in that deeply in a way that is you know, built from an interior life of prayer um, and, and relationship with him, I, I think we'll be far after time, over time, we can be far less affected by those types of things. Um, and, and, you know, it's really, a, I just think of it as a waste of time. You know, I've spent time doing that and it, it doesn't do anything good. It's not fruitful. You know, it's very mm-hmm. sterile. It makes you bitter. It makes you, you know, and it makes you not loving to that other person. So, um, one of the things that I do if I feel that sort of feeling come on is is to pray for that person. You know, everyone has hardships that we don't know and things that they're struggling with. Um, and, and I think praying for another person that either you feel anger towards or envy about or any threatened by or any, any sort of negative emotion, it changes your relationship with them into one of interiorly, one of like love and goodwill rather than, you know, threat and, and uh, comparison. You have an entire chapter about community, and I think now, I don't know if you experienced this, but after about a year and a half of not really having community with anyone, I have to kind of relearn how to do small talk and, and everything like that again. Uh, but it's just talk about the importance of, of having that connection and, and how we can I don't know, connect with each other. Yeah, no, community, I think, is so important, and particularly for young moms. I mean, mm. when I was a young mother, I had never babysat. You know, I just had no experience with babies or anything, and my husband didn't have much either. And so 
I remember uh, I made some good friends and some of them were just really wonderful, patient, kind moms. And when I would, in my own mothering, I would think, well, I wonder what, what so-and-so would do. How would she handle it? And it's almost like I was trying to imitate the, the good things that I saw in them until they became an embodiment, you know? And I think that, you know, there's all these studies where you're most influenced by the five people you're around the most, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think friendships have really that ability to either be really negative, encourage you to negative behavior patterns or positive ones. Um, and for men too, I see my husband has a great group of male friends and I can see how much they encourage each other. And, you know, they have fun and are funny together, but, you know, and it's mostly light. They're not having these deep conversations all the time, but even just that simply living life together and seeing, oh, you're being a good husband. Oh, you're being a good wife. You know, you're, you're being a good mom. You're being a good dad. You're trying hard at work. You know, these natural virtues, I think seeing them embodied in other people encourages us and, and vice versa. Hmm. All right. One more question for you. And I, I just, just I, I think we, we kind of touched on this a, a little bit with the fruit, but uh, in chapter nine, you talk about the harvest. And I just think that's just such a beautiful um, a beautiful image uh, as you start the chapter. One of the biggest struggles of homemaking is that it can feel like it matters very little in the grand scheme of things. So how do you, how do you take that, I don't know, that zoom out view and, and see how much of a difference it makes? Yeah, I mean, I actually think this is one of the most important shifts that we as a society can have, that we have so become accustomed to thinking of our public life as being more important than our than our hidden lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas I think as Christians, we know it's really the opposite, right? That our, our lives are rooted in the most hid- hidden part of us, which is our, our the interior life of the soul through our prayer life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the home is similar too, in the sense that it's not really, it's not very public. And so because that combined with this sort of propaganda, ongoing propaganda campaign to make home feel like a stupid way to spend your life um, has really affected us and affected women in particular. Um, but I, I think the more we can understand that the little things that we do in the day actually take on great significance when we do them for love. Um, and so, you know, when, when you wash the dishes, you can invite our Lord to wash the dishes with you, be mm. with me. And then when we fold our laundry, we can pull, pull each piece of laundry and pray for the person for whom we're, whom, for whom we're, we are folding. Um, but we can, all of these things are avenues to connect deeply in a deeper way with our Lord. And I think the fact that they're hidden in some ways makes them better avenues because we're not doing them for our own ego. We're not doing them for our own glory. We're truly just doing them for love. And I think that's a great lesson in life and, and, and a real, um, a muscle to build up is to be able to do the good thing and the right thing and the thing that you're called to do in that day, not for any applause, but truly just because it's what you ought to do. Hmm. Uh, one more thing. Uh, I just think, you know, the moms, there's so many moms that are listening and they might all be in different places. Maybe they're staying at home full time. Maybe they're working out of the home full time. Maybe it's kind of half and half and every single, every single one of those moms can feel like they're not enough. So what's one thing that they can do today just to feel like um, that they have a purpose and that that what they're doing is enough? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I, I think what we, we can know that we aren't enough and that's and, and that but our Lord is. Hmm. And so the, the, the more that we are leaning on him, um, you know, the, the far more far more fruit we're going to bear. But I also think we have to remember that it might feel like right now things feel murky and hazy and we don't know how they're going to turn out. Um, but that it's that, that the project of, um, of our, of our spiritual lives, of our mothering, of our, you know, whatever project that we're doing is, 
often a long-term project and it's hidden and we'll, we won't see the fruits of it for a long time. Even in the, the seeds we plant in our friendships or with neighbors or, you know, whatever good we're trying to impart into the world, it's re very rare that it's going to be a grand moment of, or flash of, of wonder, but it's far more going to be a real commitment and perseverance in life to, to doing what we were called to be doing in the moment every day to the best of our abilities with a great joy and hope in, in the, the, what the Lord. There's such pressure to do more. Sometimes there's pressure to do less. And you might be thinking, well, well which one do I choose, Andy? Well, you may want to check this out. It's called the lazy genius way because being a lazy genius isn't about doing more or less. It's about doing what matters to you. Kendra Adachi has written this incredible book and she's in the 32nd Book Club next week.